You can kick your fancy ales, you can drink them by the flagon, but the only food for the brave and true comes from the Green Dragon. Hello and welcome to the Green Dragon Podcast. This is Jeremy with a very special guest today. Yes, uh, I'm Harry. Hello, Harry. Now, keen listeners probably have never heard Harry on the Green Dragon before, but they may have heard him on the Entmoot podcast, which is a fantastic new podcast that probably is much better than the Green Dragon, which is why we all get to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, uh, the Entmoot podcast is, I've, uh, I think I've done three or three episodes now. The fourth one will be coming soon. And basically, it's a kind of tournament-based podcast. Uh, it's me just going to a tournament and talking about the list I'm taking to said tournament, um, interviewing a load of my, the people I play, as well as the tournament organiser and the winner of the tournament. So it's basically because I don't have friends like you who I can sit around and talk with uh, as often because of uh, uh, just time, really. And uh, I thought, well, I want to talk to loads of different people during a podcast. And I thought I'd give it a go and people seem to be liking it. So it's, it's been going quite well. People have really um, enjoyed it over here. We've been talking about it a little bit. We are wondering... Oh, really? Yeah, we have actually. It's it's good to hear a different voice and a different accent. We've we've not used to the the non-Australian accents for Lord of the Rings. A bit weird. Yeah, it's, it's surprising actually how how many videos and um, and podcasts there are like, like that are Australian. And um, you know, you and then there's there's Zorpa Zorp and they're, they're, these are the ones that I've always listened to. So it's odd. I, I guess it would be odd for me if I was listening to my own podcast to hear a non-Australian accent as well. To be fair. Mm. Now, Harry. What are you going to do when you win your tournament? Because I know you take really powerful lists all about Sauron and some of the other <laughs> stuff. How are you going to interview yeah. yourself? Yeah, I, I was actually worried about this because um, in the last tournament, I, got, I, I was doing really well. Um, I got three wins on the first day and I was thinking, oh gosh, I, I actually don't know what I'm going to do. But I'm, luckily, I'm, I'm bad enough of a player that even though I might be taking some quite strong lists, um, I usually let myself down at some point during the tournament. So, yeah, we'll have to wait and see whether, whether that will eventually happen, though. Oh, that's excellent news for your listeners because that's going to be a bit awkward <laughs> if you have to displace yourself. And I guess you could pre-prepare the questions and just answer them yourself. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that's a good point. But, uh, yeah, it could be quite fun if that happens. I guess I'd just interview whoever came second. That's true. That would be good. You can rub it in as well. Perfect. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> now, I've got just a behind the scenes. I know we've got a podcast to do, but I always wonder when I'm listening to it, how good are people about interviewing after the, the game? Yeah, that's, that has been a, a couple of times. Um, a couple of people have been a little less cheery, perhaps, because I'd gotten quite unlucky. And there's one game I'm thinking in particular. I got really quite lucky in this game. And um, bless him, I think uh, the guy I played, I, I don't think he really wanted to talk. But I kind of asked him at the start of the game, oh, if, is it okay after the, the game if, uh, if we have a bit of a chat for the podcast? And everyone usually agrees before the game, but I think that sometimes they're a little less less willing after after the game, especially if I've won um, because I've gotten quite lucky. But um, it's been quite good. Most people are absolutely fine with it. So um, yeah, but I don't always talk to everyone. So sometimes if you if you don't hear from someone, there might be a reason why, um, but there might not be because just time. <laughs> okay, so if there's everyone you don't talk to, I'm going to assume they're really bitter and twisted at you and are really angry. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I think that's the best, safest assumption to make, yeah. Always a good assumption. Now, Harry, we are on not just to talk about your podcast, although we could do that for a while. We're actually going to mm. talk about what makes a good event. And I thought it would be good to get a, a non-Australian view on this because we've been very Australian-focused and very Melbourne-Australian-focused. 
Yeah, I, I, it's it's interesting because I guess uh, a lot. I've, I started playing the game properly when I could start going to events. So for me, um, Lord of the Rings and Middle Earth strategy battle game is basically tournaments. So that's why I've. I started the podcast about tournaments because the reason I, I, I can't pl- really find anyone to play games in my local area. So it's all about tournaments for me. So I'm glad to be glad to be talking about tournaments, really. I think it adds quite a bit of a difference to our podcast listening. So I've enjoyed that. Now, have you just been to tournaments or have you been to any sort of non-competitive events or uh, gaming days or scenario days? Um, scenario days, uh, almost never. I, I have, there's one guy I play, uh, play with regularly, Jack, who, um, who I get a chance to play with occasionally, but really mostly it is just tournaments because, because my job, I, I kind of, I work weird shifts and, um, early starts and late starts. It just makes it really difficult to have days. So I kind of, I like to block off an entire weekend and go, right, I'm off to a tournament and I know I'm going to get seven, six games in. So, uh, it's, it's just time really that, that makes it, makes it this way for me. But I do love the game generally. I'd love to play more scenario days. When you travel to an event, what are you looking forward to? What's your expectation and what do you want out of that weekend? I guess for me, um, it's it's not... A lot of people really like the competitive side of it. I'm, I'm less bothered by that, although I'm becoming increasingly focused on it, I guess, because the more you play, the more you kind of want to win, I suppose. But to me, a good event is... Um, it's. It's usually it's all about the event pack for me and the the the, sci- the the kind of the chance to make a new list or do something slightly different that maybe you haven't done before. So I love um, the my, the last podcast I did was um, an escalation event where the first day we played four hundred points, second day game eight hundred points. So I like to go to an event where it's not just a standard six hundred point tournament or or whatever with the where you're drawing cards out of the uh, event out of the scenario packs and just going going for it. I like I like something where there's there's a few little different ways that you can build lists because I think a lot of people love building lists and I I'm no different that having a new way of building a list is is great for me. So a good event is is one that offers something that maybe you don't have uh, at other events or or does, you know, twiddles with the rules a little bit to have some extra extra special things going on. It can be nice and refreshing sometimes to just have a very standard event, but I too enjoy the the twist one. We've got an event coming mm. up very soon called the the Silmarilli, and it's yeah. a, it's a team tournament. But there's only two teams, good and evil, and you get allocated beforehand. And we have the map on the wall, and we're all trying to control territories, and all the the lists are very themed. We've got very heavy restrictions on what we can have because it's all based on the era between The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And it's a really good sort of bonding day and it takes some of the competitiveness out of it, but in some ways adds more to it. So, I think I heard your uh, podcast about that the last time. And I must say, it, it does sound, yeah, that sounds absolutely fantastic. The the the, the whole idea of, of I guess, um, everyone working together in the room and then having special rules on special tables and, and things like that. I, I just, I love the idea of that. It sounds like an amazing event. I'd love to, I'd love to go down to it. Um, but yeah, the tra- travel would, would make it probably quite restrictive. But um, I, yeah, it sounds like an amazing event. I'd love for more events like that in, in the UK because I think there are quite a few um, interesting events, but there are also plenty of... I think the, the UK scene is quite... Um, competitive generally um rather than thinking more about theme um but I, I i love all those thematic ways of adding a little bit of extra fun to a to a tournament definitely now we might go to a bit more of a general as an overview the listener type questions because 
we can talk specifically about us, but I think it'll become very narrow. So as a player in general, not just us, what do you need before a tournament? So just for preparation, what sort of uh, guidelines, expectations, dates, anything do you need in advance? Yeah, so I think event it's well worth having a decent event pack because um, sometimes the people have lots of questions about what they can and can't take, and and it's well worth having a really nicely nicely prepared event pack with a bit of fun in it as well as as well as just things. But generally, uh, if you're organising a tournament or if you're going to a tournament, I think it's it's well worth reading up on those things, finding out what scenarios are going to be included, if there are restrictions on those, and 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 things like that. But just just making sure that you know exactly what you're getting yourself in for um, and knowing who's going to be there sometimes and, and how, what the evening's activities are like. Because I, I, I remember I was really scared of going to my first tournament and, and I think um, just having um, a, a really comprehensive event pack means that people, are, people know what they're getting themselves in for, especially if you're going to your first tournament and you're wanting to play the first uh, competitive kind of thing. I think just having an event pack where you detail every little nook and cranny so you know what's for lunch and you know what your evening's activities whether it's a pub quiz or something like that um so i'd say yeah yeah, if you're going to a tournament read that event pack and if you're preparing a tournament make sure you have a really comprehensive one because the last thing you want is people asking you loads of questions about oh how many points do i have or can i have uh this uh, do i need to paint the models do they need to be undercoated and uh, uh, you know based and things like that that's uh, all those stuff all those things i think are pretty important now in the UK, do you do you, do the players read the event pack? I think some players probably don't, but um, I love I love reading event packs. It's a, it's a weird hobby of mine that I like. I like just like finding out what, even if I'm not not now I'm not going to be able to go to a tournament. I like finding out what other people are planning and how they've written event packs and how they've um, uh, how they've structured tournaments. Just because it gives you ideas for other things you might want to do in the future, or or maybe you might want to go to it in the future, even if you can't make it to it this time. So, but I think some people probably just turn up on the day and go, oh, yeah, 700 points. I'll work out my list because I've got this army with me or whatever. Yeah, we've started to get that. For a while, Kylie was the run running all the tournaments. So the packs were very similar and very consistent. And then the other mm. people running started to obtain those packs and just copy them and pretty much use them the same, which was fine. Nothing wrong with that. But we mm. stopped reading them. So the organizers <laughs> now have started to put little like um, Easter eggs and things into the players pack. So they'll come around at the end of a round or something like that and ask some abs- weird question and we've got to respond in a certain way to get tournament points and if we haven't read that Ah, we get caught out that's a really good idea i like that just to make sure everyone's um everyone's actually reading the information just that yeah Uh, if you don't answer in a certain way that's really cool i like yeah those those sorts of things but they all make it quite fun because then you can you can trap people trick people and and have a bit of a laugh in between in between games especially it's a great way of breaking the ice of, of, you know, if you've just had a bit of a bit of a tense game or whatever, having little Easter egg kind of fun games that you have to take part in between um, between the games. I love that. Love that sort of stuff. Just makes yeah. it a whole weekend of fun rather than just, just you know, intense gaming all the time. Yeah, it's really good to, to reward the players for, for reading it rather than to, to punish them, I guess. But I guess it's a bit of both. Mm. It, it does make it an interesting way. And if people have to do something silly for extra points... I know for one of David's tournaments, I had to sing a song, so I composed a song for my army and and sung it in front of everyone and got some points, which was all good. But wow, uh, it depends. That sounds that sounds like great fun. Yeah, it was. It was really good. I was the only one who did that. Everyone else did banners and all kinds of things, but I thought an ode to my I can't even remember what it was. Ode to Numenor or something like that would be a good way to go. Yeah, I like it. I like it. For the games, do you most of the tournaments play at a consistent points level, or do they vary it up during the events? Do you think? 
the main points range has always been between 400 and 800 in my experience. But um, I, I do like the ones that are, um, that are escalation events, like I said, the earlier. But usually it's a, it's a tournament where you take one army at 700 points or 600 or something like that, and you play the whole day and the whole tournament with just that army. Um, but I do like a bit of escalation. But I like the idea that uh, of, of potentially doing it slightly different ways and maybe playing with different points levels. But yeah, most tournaments I've been to are around 600, 700 points these days. Do they use the, the standard army, uh, sorry, the standard scenarios, or is it something something abstract or randomly chosen from a pool? What kind of detail do you go into in that? Usually the tournaments here seem to basically just be, these days, drawing from the scenario pack, so it's random most of the time. But I, I quite like the tournaments where it specifies exactly which um, missions you're going to be playing and in which order um, because it can make a really big difference you know to what uh, what army build you bring because obviously if you've got no recon for example then you're you're more happy about bringing your dwarves but um i, I yeah I, I think these days i don't know there's there's not a lot of custom scenarios i don't i, I find in um in our in the tournaments i've been to anyway or maybe i'm missing the uh, missing the fun ones um but uh, they're, they're, they're mostly drawing from the event pack not that it's not fun to go from the event pack but i do love um Love some little inventive ideas. In fact, I've, I'm doing a tournament um, in October where I've, I've created a few little variations of things like the uh, seize the prize, for example. And and I love love just little just to make it something new and something fresh. I guess. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. We got very uh, sick of the old scenarios for a while. There was uh, six scenarios in the book, and four of them were always yeah. the same, and they were the ones that people always chose. So we got very very bored and wanted to move on. But I feel like the pack mm. at the moment is probably in the best state it's ever been in. So if you just take those 12 as an organizer or as a player, you're pretty much going to get a good variety of games when they draw. There's only maybe two or three that are pretty similar. And there's, there's a good mix for a good mix of armies. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree, actually. And um, they're quite balanced in, in a, a subtle way. That, that means that if you say you bring an old cavalry army, you're going to always have a good chance of winning a couple of scenarios if you play same play say playing six games um whereas you know and also if you've got a a dwarf army where you know it's all you've got a good chance of hold ground and things like that coming up so although there are some armies obviously that are capable of doing everything if you really wanted to go themed like i like doing going just going all dwarves or all something then at least you know that it, it's, you've got a good chance of winning at least a few games and it's not going to be a, a terrible, horrible, horrible day for your dwarves if every single to- um, uh, mission it really is, is about fast moving or something like that. Mm. So I think as an organiser or as a player, make sure you have a good think about the missions that you're either giving your players or as a player, the army. This one goes into our next point a little bit. I, for a while, started to design armies that, that won or lost really quickly um, so I was th- using things like Mahood or uh, the mm. low defense elves or anything that hits hard but dies pretty fast because the time yeah. to play is a tricky one. How long do you usually have for an, around event, for an event? It's really tricky. I think this is one of the, um, the, the hardest things to – if I was planning a tournament or, or going to tournaments, this is one of the most difficult things because some, some games um, you can end up really – it, like you say, depending on the army you take, if you've got Mahood or or something like that, or a very high um, elite, high, a really elite army, then a, a seven hundred point game, for example, could take two hours or two and a half hours even. Um, if and if you're coming up against something that's a, a horde of goblins, if you know, if you've got say Lake Town versus Goblin Town, you're going to have a really long game. So it's really, I, I think that must be the hardest thing um, to to kind of talk about um, in in advance of these things because you've got to. You've got to balance that 
okay, some um, some games are going to, you know, a 700-point game for some people might take like half an hour because they've got, um, I don't know, Sauron and the Ringwraith, uh, Ringwraith something like that. Um, but other people are going to take ages. So it's, it's really tricky. You don't want people to be hanging around for like 45 minutes after every game waiting for the next one because they finish really quickly and other people are taking ages. But equally, um, there's nothing worse than knowing you're in a position in a game where you you know if you had a couple more turns or even one more turn that you you'd definitely win it um and but the time, the clock's been called and you have to wrap up before you have a chance to properly capitalize on it so if you've got a horde that's taking ages to churn through stuff but um yeah i i think 700 points i, I seem to think about an hour and three quarters seems to be our our average but um but it'd be nice to have a bit more time we have about two hours for for that points level, and I feel it's almost always rushed at the end. Uh, I yeah. Feel, I don't know if it's because people still taking high model count armies or they're just not fast enough or we talk a lot during the games, but there's a lot of games always that you don't quite get to the actual scenario finish and you get some really skewed mm. results at times, which is okay. It's not it's not the end of the world. Especially if you've got a really big army. Just just the movement phase can take so long, especially if you it's like an objective grabbing one and when it's really important where... Each model is for, or if, if say you've got a big army and you're up against cavalry, you've got to be really careful where you're moving. And I can understand why it takes so long, but equally, it is it's very frustrating if you're at the other end of that and you're playing against an army that's taking, you know, twenty minutes to just do the move phase. Um, when you think, ah, you know, if we've got a bit more, to, if we did this a bit quicker, I'm pretty sure I'm going to win this. But yeah, and, and I don't think people ever ever really do it. Uh, I've I've heard people mention slow playing as a tactic, but I don't think it really happens that often. Um, or certainly doesn't here in the games. Certainly not in the games I've ever played. But it it can be frustrating when you you know fully well that somebody's army um, they're just they're just taking really long to move everything. Yeah, we've got some players who we know that take take their time to play the game, and that's okay. They they have a a bit of a longer think about everything, but they always seem to take horde hmm. armies as well, which is I think a bit of self awareness yeah. as well. Yeah, that is true. Actually, there's a there's a couple of guys I know that that take horde armies that also take a long time to decide stuff. That's that's yeah, whether it's deliberate or not, I'm sure it isn't. But it is a bit frustrating when you go, oh, I'm playing against them in an objective grabbing game and they take ages. Yeah, very frustrating. So organizers, I think, need to be careful about the first round as well. We have this thing where the organizers think that as soon as we get into a venue, we're going to get going. But it takes so mm. much time even just to find the tables and get right onto the right table and introduce yourself and show your list and all this sort of stuff. So I've been advocating for an extra 15 minutes or so for the first round just for that settling time. Yeah, and in fact, that's something that we have a lot of really good tournaments in the UK. Almost all of them have a kind of registration period where you know it's about half an hour at least at the start, so you sort of arrive at say nine a.m. or a quarter past nine or half nine or something like that, and the first game's not until ten o'clock. So you've got a good half an hour where you can, you know, grab yourself a drink and meet the person you're playing and get your stuff, get all your toys out. You know, it's uh, it's a long process getting things out of foam cases and getting them on the table or onto a tray or whatever, and then yeah, then taking in the scenario and and the terrain that you're you're up against and things like that. So it's yeah, it, it does take a lot of time to get get your head in the game, I guess. Before you, uh, yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't like to arrive at tournament and have to have to within five minutes get onto the game. Otherwise, otherwise, yeah, you, you're going to be suffering the downsides really. I guess pretty quickly. Uh, definitely, definitely. Now I'm going to move on to 
probably a controversial topic here, and it's one that, that I've got my own opinion about, and that's how much terrain and what sort of terrain you bring to an event. Uh, can you comment first, and then I'll respond, Harry? I think uh, I, I really like terrain in games. Um, I, know, I, I know you're quite pro-terrain um, just from listening to the podcast, but um, I, I like terrain, not, not necessarily because of the game... Uh, the gameplay um, stuff. I, I actually just like the terrain because we. I, I played the Lord of the Rings or Middle Earth because I want to be immersed in Middle Earth. Um, otherwise, I'd play like 40k or something, um, or you know, some other kind of game perhaps. But but I, I'm really in into Lord of the Rings because I love the Lord of the Rings and the and the 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 theme. So if if there's a tournament where it's got you know really themed boards, whether it's you know you're playing in Dwaradelf one turn or you're playing at the Dead Marshes the next time. Um, I think I think that's probably my favourite thing about uh, about terrain is you can really immerse yourself and you know ah oh, yeah we're fighting in the plains of Rohan or or something like that and it just adds a lot of fun to it um, but also um, it does affect the games especially I'm I'm not really a bow kind of guy I don't like elves I don't really like pe- uh, playing against elves either um, so I don't really like shooting in in the Lord of the Rings um, because. I don't know. I just find I just want to get stuck in. So it's really nice having um, a board where there's terrain that I can actually avoid getting shot to pieces before I arrive. Because there's nothing worse than you know turning up on a board where it's completely flat and there's no blocking line of sight, and you're playing against like a Lothlorien army where they've just got twenty or so bows, and you think, oh my god, I don't want this. But um, yeah, so I, I'm I'm very pro terrain, um, but mainly for the theme than uh, for the tactical advantages. Uh, we don't have an alternative point of view here as well. I guess the alternative <laughs> point of view would be that it's easier to have less terrain, and it's some people argue it's more fair, but I don't know if that's true either. As a shooting player, I take lots of shooting in my armies. I still want more terrain because I don't want this, like, me standing still, gun you off, and then we both get grumpy at the end of the game because it was boring. I want to be oh, able to move. Yeah. I want to get my shots. Yeah, I guess that's that, that's that's a fair thing because you want to have, um, have a bit of tactical... Um, know how about it rather than just standing at the back and having a gun line of bows or just churning through the enemy you want you want to be able to make some decisions to make it a tactically interesting game for you but i see what you're saying about the um the difficulty in getting terrain because um i know that um i, I talked to a few of the guys who've setting up their first tournaments because i've got one coming up soon and um they were like yeah the hardest thing is is getting terrain because if you've got say 40 people coming to a tournament or or 30 or or 20 even you know that's that's 10 full tables of of terrain and and it's it's it can be expensive and it can be really time consuming building building all that stuff but i guess after a while of doing tournaments you slowly build up a a collection of of terrain which which makes it more more interesting but yeah I, i can understand the counterpoint that man it must be really frustrating if you if you've got like a full tournament of 40 people and you realize you've only got like 15 tables worth of stuff because building five tables worth of terrain is god that must be that must be horrendous <laughs> yeah the first masters we did we 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 took on that we wanted every terrain table to be as nice as possible we had to make probably about 20 of them all together and it was mm. every night people over sawdust everywhere paint everywhere all this sort of stuff making making a mess and getting tables which vary in quality actually some of them stick in my garage and and are never coming out and others turn up in every tournament but it takes a lot of effort so get a club together and and build them up slowly start small tournaments you don't have to take 40 people first time either just yeah true yeah that's the thing it's uh, i think having your first tournament at a um being ambitious could bite you in the bum if you have a 
sell all your tickets for a 40-pointer tournament, a uh, 40-player tournament, and then you realize, hey, I've got I'll do it. It's great. I've sold all my tickets. Oh, no. I, now I have to do 20 tables worth of terrain. Absolutely. Now, in the UK, I hear lots about food being provided at tournaments. I hear about pub quizzes and drinking nights and restaurants and all other activities. We tend to have that at very specific events, but at most events, we're left to our own devices. Is it normal to have food provided at a tournament? Um, I think most of the tournaments I go to, there's some kind of food provided. Not always. Um, some places, it, it depends where, where the tournament is, I suppose. But um, some places they have like a bar or something and you just go for, for lunch. But a lot of the times the tournaments are in kind of halls and, and places where it's not always convenient to go and um, and get a lunch or, or whatever. But I, I think I, I kind of think that um, those kinds of activities make or break a tournament for me because – you go for a social thing and if everyone's then, you know, going off with their own, you know, you usually know a few people at tournaments and so on, but if everyone kind of splinters off into little groups, uh, you know, heading off to Mackie D's or whatever to get their lunch, then it's, it's less, it feels like a less of a kind of uh, a group activity then if there's sort of little pockets of people heading off here, there and everywhere. So I really like it when there's a lunch provided. So, cause everyone, you, you might sit on, sit on your tables and have a chat with whoever you've just played or, or just generally mill about and have a, use that lunchtime for a bit more of a, a social activity rather than just, just, you know, literally going and, and getting food. But, and it's the same with the evening activities. I, I, I always think it's a shame if, if there isn't something, if, especially if it's a two day tournament, you know, people have come quite, quite away sometimes, you know, there are people staying in hotels sometimes, um, and if there's nothing planned in the evening, it, it can feel like a bit of an anticlimax, especially at a day where, you know, you're so immersed in the game that if you then head on off to a, a hotel room on your own, um, you kind of get the tournament blues almost. You think, oh, no, I, I really want to just be playing more games where I'm sat on my own in a hotel. So I love it when there's, um, you know, when, when there's a quiz in the evening or or something. And usually I think almost every tournament I go to, there is something happening in the evening, whether it's just going out for dinner or, or, um, or having a, a quiz or some kind of evening activity. I, I really just think they'd make or break the weekend. Um, cause it's all about the social thing after all. Um, and the more social stuff you get from a tournament, the better, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. I think any two-day tournament needs to have some sort of activity planned or thought about because you want to attract people who travel from far away. And if they're going to do all that effort to go from far away, they want some interesting events and some uh, pub quiz or a drinking night or a karaoke or anything like that. Need to make sure you've got something for them. If it's a one-day event, I am more than fine with nothing provided. We just go in, play some games and go home though because that's, that's the express event. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, I, I don't think I would expect anything on a one-day event, whereas I would expect it on a two-day event, and I'd be kind of disappointed if there wasn't something on a two-day event. But yeah, the one-day thing, even if it's just lunch, though, it's just nice to have have something kind of at least vaguely planned or at least have a thing in the event pack or, or whatever saying in the, in the start of it saying, you know, this is what we're going to be doing for lunch. We're, we're going to a certain place or we're going to have it in the bar or we're going to have a buffet or, or whatever. At least then people know, oh, okay, it's it's community kind of lunch rather than just, you know, everyone dashing off and grabbing a sandwich from the nearby supermarket or something. I like that. I think we've got to do that a bit better in Australia. We tend to, to leave people just go off and get your own lunch or bring your own lunch, and we tend not to provide enough time to do that. That's the other thing, isn't it? That, that if, you've, if you're spending half an hour traveling to and from a, a nearby supermarket or, or going for lunch, then 
it, it, it cuts down on time for the games. And especially if people have traveled a long way, perhaps that morning, they want to, you just want to get playing really. And if you've got like a little buffet um, of just a few sandwiches, then it's, it's, it's just so much easier and, and there's less faff and there's more time to actually rest between that intense game that you've just had that was came right down to the wire and then you don't have to, uh, you can actually sit down and rest a bit because it's, it's quite intense. It can be quite tiring, you know, two, three, two, three games in the morning perhaps. And, you know, it, 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 it's tiring mentally and also you, you're leaning over that table all day and straining yourself <laughs> in so many ways. It's nice to just have a sit down for lunch, I think. Uh, definitely agree. I want to. I want to get more of that. I think we should steal that. The UK. We they can steal our terrain. We'll steal your lunch. That will be the way to go. That sounds like a good deal. Let's go with that. Yeah, let's do it. Done. Done. Deal. Okay, we might have a break there, Harry, and we'll come back okay. with some organizer specific advice. And we are back again, listeners, with some very specific advice for organizers of events and potential organizers of events, which is actually everyone listening. Yeah, I, I, that's a good point. Everyone should be organizing events because it's, it's great to have new fresh blood in the tournament organizer scene, I think, as well. Um, it's just, I, I think the more, more people doing them, the better for everyone because then there are more events and perhaps you don't have to travel as far even and things like that. Absolutely, everyone should be organizing events. Definitely, definitely. We all want to be organizing events. So pre-event, first thing you got to think about is how are you going to let people know about your events? Because events are very easy to run if no one turns up, but it's pretty boring. So you really want to get those players along. Yeah, I, I think that must be the trickiest thing. I mean, I, I don't uh, talking from someone who actually hasn't organized even their first event yet. It's it's coming. It's coming in October. Um, but yeah, the hardest thing is going well. What if I put all this effort in and I, I spend some money booking a hall or whatever, and then nobody turns up? So yeah, you've really got to got to have a have a way of planning it and promoting it. Actually, in the UK, um, thankfully we have the Great British Hobbit League, which is um, a, quite an official thing. But um, it means that you've got a platform that you can start going. You know what? If I'm in the Great British Hobbit League, or my, if my tournament is going to be awarding points in the Great British Hobbit League, you're going to start, you, you have attracted a bit of a kudos already because, you know, you've got, you've got that league, which I think is, is a great way of uh, help, helping encourage people coming along. Yeah, and we've got the equivalent, the Australian Middle-Earth Strategy Battle Game. We actually advanced past the Hobbit uh, Facebook page. <laughs> it's not a league. I can't remember the exact one, but Facebook seems to be where everyone's advertising tournaments. Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine anywhere else at the moment. Um, I mean, obviously, podcasts like yours, uh, it, it's great if you get a shout out. And I know the a uh, couple of the YouTube uh, videos, uh, I know the, the Palantir on the Great British Hobbit League Facebook YouTube page, um, they, are, they used to, um, when they did all regular stuff, they used to give shout outs to whatever tournament was coming up and, and the results of previous tournaments and stuff. So it's always great if there's, there's this kind of growing scene of, of podcasts and video providers, it'd be great if they give shout outs to as many of the tournaments as they can. So, 
that's a good idea. Yeah, get in touch with one of those. And they probably know a community anyway. So sometimes we haven't been able to shout our events, but we've been able to talk to people who have been looking for events in that area. Because sometimes people ask us, just say, oh, do you know of any events in this area? And, and sometimes mm. it's a, a country that we've never heard of an event in before, but you get to, to talk to someone else from that country and they know who it is. Yeah, Ask. absolutely. I, I I definitely encourage people. I, if if um, people ever were weren't sure of any tournaments or which tournaments to advise for a beginner and things like that, if if people wanted to get in touch with me, I'd be more than happy to point them in the right direction. And I'm sure that's the case with anyone really who's embedded in the scene. We're not. I, there's this. I think there's this kind of idea um, that if you go to lots of tournaments, you're like an ultra competitive person who who really really wants to just be in your league and get your league points. But actually. Um, we're all just interested in playing the games and we'd love more people to come along no matter how advanced you are and how how good at the game you are it's, it's more just having having new new people and meeting new people that's right you gotta get those easy wins so come along new people <laughs> yeah now so event organizers differ quite a bit in what they want beforehand we get some that want list submissions and payments and and things months ahead of time and we get others who turn up on the day and pay on the day. What's the process in the UK and, and what would you like to, to see as an organiser? Most of the tournaments you pay in advance for, um, just so you know how many people are coming because um, increasingly tournaments in the UK, they're, they're selling out and uh, like if, if the hall has 20 or 30 people and then it's, it's, it sells out and then people, a tournament organiser are often asking for, um, for payment in advance, usually via PayPal, um, friends and family option if they if they can because then you don't get that that fee. Um, but but I, and I think for me organising a tournament, I've I've sold a few tickets already and people have paid. It's great when you know exactly who's coming and who's because um, because then you can you start investing in prizes and and the more people who pay in advance and and actually you know uh, a guarantee that they're coming, the more likely you are to get really good prizes. If you have say ten people turn up on the day, then that that money that they're paying can't really go into the prize pot and you feel guilt i'd feel guilty um because i wouldn't be able to spend as much money uh, on prizes which that's ultimately I, I don't really care about if i'm organizing a tournament i wouldn't care about making any money off it i kind of want to spend all the money on um good terrain and on prizes and if you're paying in advance that means that your money is more likely to go into making the tournament a better experience than lining the pockets of some unscrupulous to <laughs> I haven't heard of those. We don't have those in Australia. Just the idea of making money off a tournament seems a bit silly because it's a lot of work for for actually very little money coming in. And once you pay for venues and everything else that's going on, people tend to know what it costs. Yeah, I don't. I don't think anyone is really. I don't think there's like a black market of people making thousands and thousands of pounds off tournaments. But I mean, I guess I I guess you probably could make a bit of money if you if you did it well and and had lots and lots of people coming. But um, I, I don't think that's likely. Like you know, it's even think like if you think of the scale of something like Ardacon, you need to put an awful lot of money in to um, to book all the tables and book the big hotel venue. And I, I just think the it's it's unlikely you're ever going to make a, a, a mint off it. And so, but I guess you could if you wanted to make a few coins out of it. You could, but um, I think it's more. It'd be it'd be silly to do that because people are going to find out eventually, and 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 you're going to have this kind of bitter taste if you're going spending thirty quid on a tor- tournament, and you know that the organisers making a lot of money. You won't, we won't want that. But I think uh, always advise if you're a tournament organiser to encourage people to pay up front, so then you can show that you've put um, a lot of money into this tournament and and spent a lot of money on prizes and and you know just to make the experience better. 
Definitely, definitely. Uh, what about list submission? Is that something that's really important? Um, a lot of tournaments here, uh, we just go for and uh, submit the lists a, a week in advance or something. Especially if there's like unusual rules for the tournament. So if the tournament has um, quite a few restrictions, that's usually, you know, submit them in, in advance. So then you know you, you've you've got a, a few days to rectify a problem if you've if you've not followed the rules quite right or or something like that. But sometimes you you hand a tournament. In fact, the last tournament, the escalation one, which uh, contrary to what I just said, uh, had a bit of special rules to it. But that was a hand in on the day thing. So I think it just depends. But I, I think I'd I'd like to. I'd like to know personally, as a as a player in a tournament, I like to know if I've got my list right because there's nothing worse than turning up on the day and realizing you've added up your points wrong or or you've you've broken the rule a, a rule restriction. You haven't got the the miniatures with you to uh, to do it because I love painting new armies and I love doing things specifically for tournaments. And it, it'd be horrible I'd, I'd, if I turned up at a tournament and realized that I couldn't use a miniature that I'd spent hours and hours painting up for this tournament. Um, because you just feel I just feel awful about it. So it's nice to know that if you submit a list in advance, you've got your rules confirmed, and you know, right? Okay, all I need to do is make sure I've got the right stuff. So yeah, I'd, I'd always be up for list submission a week in advance. So then you've got loads of time to sort out any problems. It's a good reason to do it. But as an organizer, please remember to give yourself time to read through those lists and actually check them. So if, if you do get people submitting lists, you have to actually read through them. You have to find mistakes in them because. Players will not like it if lists have been submitted and then something's been given the going through and they're over by a couple hundred points or any any other dodgy things happening. Yeah, absolutely. That is so true because it, it doesn't happen very often. But, you know, even minor change because of the change with between rule books, it's very easy to remember a certain old points thing uh, and go, oh, yeah, I remember how... Uh, again, of course, and I just write it down and get it wrong, for example. Or um, I know... Uh, I've, I know I've heard someone who went to tournament with Celeborn and they didn't account for the points cost of the armor, and but they came with they wanted the armor, and it, it on the day it's like oh no I've got like I've now got to spend fifteen points on the armor and and uh, a shield and and I didn't point to spend that and then you're over by a certain amount and and it all just becomes very confusing. So if if a if a tournament organizer if you're organizing a tournament yeah you you really need to do that and and enlist some friends. I mean. You almost certainly know a couple of people. If you're organising a tournament, you almost certainly know some people who are going to be able to help read through some lists and check the rules. So just get a few, few other people to help do it because it may, it really makes uh, uh, makes it a lot easier and saves a lot of time. And and yeah, you don't want to uh, sort of have this cloud hanging over the day of so, you know some list that you checked ended up being wrong and then they ended up winning or something like that. That would just really ruin a tournament for for everyone if there was some kind of dodgy dealings that that uh, that ruined uh, that. That kind of yeah, affected things. Yeah, that's the nightmare of the tournament organizer. If you make a mistake and then someone wins a tournament based on that, it can really throw it off. We had one years ago where that basically happened, and um, I had to give advice to the tournament organizers. Just say, just everyone involved, go apologize for them, explain what it is, and I'll duplicate the prize for for the person who sort of got cheated out of their first place, and um, mm. just let them know because yeah, because it's it's really hard to go back, isn't it, retroactively in a game and say, oh, okay, well that 100 points made a difference, or, you know, even if it's just 10 points, like, you could argue, oh, 10 points, that's two Orc Bowmen, you know, or two Orc Trekkers or whatever. That, that, those could make the difference um, between a win and a loss. So it's really hard to retroactively change these things. So it's really important to get them right in the first instance. Yeah, definitely get them right. Now, in terms of venue, we've got 
we we've got in Australia basically two choices. You either go to like a school hall or a scout hall or somewhere that you go where you, it's not designed for wargaming. Or you have the purpose-built venue. That we've got a couple big stores that, that can hold tournaments for, for war games. I think there's a, a Games Workshop one in Brisbane, and we've got a local one called House of War, um, which is very handy. But what do you do in the UK? It, it really does vary. I think it's the same. It's the choice between either a function room at a pub or a, um, a village hall, like a scout hall, or it is a, a tournament um, at, a, at a games place. I mean, I quite like... Um, I quite like going to a games place because then you know you can you might be able to buy some paints and some or, or some new minis or whatever while you're there. But it doesn't really bother me to be honest. The only downside to having a tournament in a hall is that the the you, you can't be sure that the uh, terrains and terrain and stuff is going to be as good. At least you know when you go into a gaming club or, or um, a proper gaming venue that the likelihood is you're going to have some decent tables and you're going to have some decent to- uh, terrain because they'll probably have some in the back room somewhere anyway. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't bother me, but usually it's, it's kind of a half and half split um, between them. But it's nice to have uh, somewhere where it, it's a toss-up really for me. I, I quite like anywhere that's, that's going to have a pub or a, a bar or something where you, you, you don't have to worry about, oh, I need to go and get a drink from down the road or, or you know, even just doesn't have to be alcoholic, just any kind of drink. But um, some, some village halls and stuff, you, you, it's a bit more of a faff to get your food and your drink and so on. But some gaming clubs are the same. But uh, it's, it's always nice to know that you've got it all in one place. I, I think tournaments are best when everything, including the social activity, kind of fits into that place. So if it's a, a like there's a gaming venue called Element Games in Stockport near Manchester, and um, that, I've been to quite a few tournaments there because it's really convenient because you've got a shop where they sell loads of Lord of the Rings toys. You've got paints and, and stuff like that. They've also got a, a licensed bar and they've got games, that, uh, like board games and stuff that you can play after the tournament. So you don't have to go anywhere. It's just go to that place, play your games, and then evening activities all in one place. It's handy. It's really handy. And so I, I like that kind of tournament in terms of a destination. Yeah, My, my personal preference is for the, the venue that's out of the way, somewhere that... People can get there with public transport. It's easy to get to, but it's not linked mm. in with a gaming store, so you don't get all that foot traffic. But from a marketing mm. the game point of view, it's exactly what you don't want. You want everyone to see people having fun and be able to walk in and look by. So it's a quite a tough choice. And oftentimes game stores will give you some discounts on like prizes and things. So it might be worth, if you're starting out, linking in with a game store because they've probably got some experience and they might be able to supply you with terrain or prizes or something like that that can be mutually beneficial. Yeah, I, I, that's a good point about how, uh, you know get, getting out of the way because it can. I, I don't. I don't think it's necessarily an issue, but it's really not. I do like being at tournaments at a game place where, you know, you have people wandering over and seeing. Oh, look, there's so many people playing Middle Earth. I didn't realize there were this many people interested in this game. And there's plenty of times when, you know, you get just people who are there for uh, playing. Uh, War, War, another Warhammer system, and they will like walk around for ages looking at you know the, the fact that you've got all these beautiful painted Lord of the Rings miniatures. And I remember a guy in the last tournament I was playing at just came over and was like, "Oh my god, you've got Shelob and Sauron." I was like, "Yeah, yeah, we're playing Lord of the Rings." Like, "Oh my god, I didn't know people still did that," um, which is great. I love that because it means that you're and you, you know you're, tar- you're kind of showcasing Lord of the Rings to people who are likely to be interested. Whereas if, like you say, you're at a village hall, it's 
it's kind of out of the way and it feels very much like an underground thing sometimes. So I, I, I'm, I'm all up for being a, a big gaming convention, but I guess it can be harder to book the tables and stuff if, if, if it's a big popular destination. Once you've got the numbers, you can take the risk and go to the, the village hall. Of, but early on, I think, I think relying on the experience of the game store is probably the way to go. And yeah, for us, it saves us money big time because the local venue... Uh, basically what they charge just goes straight into prices. Whereas if you book a hall, you've got to pay a couple hundred dollars down payment and you've got to make sure you've got insurance and all this other stuff that gets a bit messy. Yeah, that, and that, that's the last thing. We don't want anyone to be losing money by um, organizing a tournament, which uh, is, I suppose if you've got a hall, it's, it's more likely to happen. It, you don't, Nobody wants to be losing money to try and sacrifice themselves to make sure everyone has a great time. Um, but some people, some people do, so... Um, but yeah, it'd be great to not have to do that, and a gaming club is more likely to be good value for that. Now, in terms of terrain, we've talked about this quite a bit before, but we recommend limit the tickets based on the tables you can provide. So make sure you've got the space. Um, if you've got big gamers around, make sure you've got a lot of space, and make sure you have enough terrain to to get a game because it does leave people with a bit of a taste, bit of taste in the mouth. Where some tables are. You know, the bowling green table where it's just a, a spray paint green and maybe it's got one tree and others are really nice dead marshes or Helm's Deep or anything that's really iconic and you get that mixture. You've got to try and make a balance between um, making all the tables sort of different in, in a way that, that, you know, it's not just a cookie, uh, cookie cutter kind of tournament layout that every single table you play on is going to be exactly the same, which I... I I don't see the point in that. Um, it's much more fun when you've got, you know, one that's got loads of ruins and one that's got loads of trees and one that's got marshes and stuff. But equally, um, you don't want it to fundamentally affect the result of the games too much. If, you know, if say you've got a, something that's blocking the line of sight in the middle, whether it's a tower or a tree or whatever, then it kind of doesn't matter. But when it, when it becomes, you know, a, a bit of a coin flip, oh, you know, oh, I, I ended up playing on, like you say, the bowling green table, um, against the army, uh, you know, the Rivendell Knight army, which just tore me to shreds. Like that would that would be really annoying. And you think, well, if I, if we'd played on the ruins table, I'd have smashed him. Um, but that, that, I, nobody wants that. But equally, you you do want to have enough uh, tables to have a bit of variety and fun. I think. But but also something we ha- I haven't mentioned about um, tables. I think it's really important to have enough room on either side of the table to you know put your dead miniatures to put your books and to put your you know dice and things like that because the last thing you want is to be crammed into a four by four table that's border lining up with somebody else's four by four table or something like that where you there's no room to put your books because the um, I mean, the amount of these books we've got these days you know with with all the supplements and the rule books you've got the hobbit book you've got the middle earth book the rule book you've got the lord of the rings one now you've got gondor war and soon there'll probably be another one so People are carrying like six books and we, we need somewhere to put all those. Oh, that's so true. I've got a pile of, yeah, six books on my desk next to me because I was just going through them, planning out some episodes and I'm worried that if my kids walk by and the books fall on them, they're going to take a serious injury because there's yeah. real weight here. <laughs> it's becoming a thing where you have to sort of, everyone has to have like a massive bag and a rucksack just to carry all these things and then you've got your, you know, your notepads for your lists and you know, I, I have a little whiteboard to keep track of might and will and fate and things like that. So uh, and ends up being like, you know, like back-breaking work, just, just looking around the books, let alone the models. No, so no wonder I'm taking armies like Sauron on his own. It's, it's so much less faff to carry. Yeah, I've done that as well, taking the armies that fit into my smallest case possible. And um, oftentimes, <laughs> like, I took my dwarves with the um, the 
what is it, Girion and Friends, just because they could fit oh, this yeah, little yeah. tiny container and <laughs> away again. Did really well, but it was good fun. Yeah, so make sure there's enough space. We've had tournaments where the tables have been so close together that you get very cozy with the person behind you, so you get lots of back rubs <laughs> unintentionally. Yeah. And... yeah, that happens a lot as well. We don't want that. <laughs> it's a bit awkward at times. Sometimes it's okay, but a bit strange. On the event, we've talked about most things to do. We've talked about some foods, but one thing I really want to stress is have your crew of helpers ready to go, and that can be players. Just let people know. If you, if you want, give them a certificate of thanks or something at the end of it, but have a crew ready to go to set up either the night before or the morning of the event. Um, make sure the yeah. venue is open and really work that because last thing you want to do is set up every table and your computer for your round drawer and everything else. You really want to make sure it's done for you. Yeah, it's. It, I'd, I'd imagine it would really take away the stress um, of, on the morning of a tournament, um, if, especially if you've got a relatively early start time at you know nine o'clock or something like that. The last thing you want to be doing is um, staying up late, finishing off the last terrain, and then rushing in and bringing it all in and, and setting it all out at sort of seven o'clock in the morning because these are long days, especially if you're organising it and then you're you know you're posting your results and things like that afterwards. Um, it, it's it can be it can be a really long day and and probably really exhausting. So yeah, have a, have a team of people who are who are willing to just you know even if it's just helping out setting some terrain up. That's that's going to be going to be really invaluable and in terms of packing up i don't know about you but we've decided that awards always go after pack up because otherwise everyone legs it out of there and the poor organizers stuck there packing up terrain and moving things into cars and doing all kinds of annoying things at the end of the day yeah that's a really good idea actually i think we should adopt that strategy because i I, i've stayed behind at a few tournaments to help people pack away because it's just you you just feel bad because especially when someone's put a a lot of effort into making terrain and and you know they want to pack it up carefully and things like that but um yeah it's it's sad when everyone i mean i know people have to rush off sometimes because you know if it's sunday night and you've some people have traveled really far to get there you know they've got to be at work in the next day then i can understand people wanted to go off but you know if everyone packed up the terrain from their table um then it'd make it a hell of a lot easier uh, at the end of the day yeah, you have the box under the table labelled with the terrain in it. You have your crew of people who know how to put the terrain away. And once their game starts finishing, they just start attacking the tables and putting them away while the organiser works yeah. out the awards. It works really well if it's done done right, I think. So definitely Absolutely. something to consider. Awards pretty much work themselves. Everyone's got their own sort of awards. You've got to decide as an organiser what you're going to reward. So if you want to just go competition, you're going just games. If you want to reward painting or sportsmanship or anything like that, Feel free to. People don't mind as long as they know ahead of time. Yeah, I, th- I think personally, my personal preference would be to always have a sporting and always have a painting um, award. Um, my, but that, maybe that's just because I don't off, I don't win tournaments, really. Um, so I, I, I'd like the idea that I can have a chance in of, you know, if I've painted a really nice army and and it encourages people to uh, to try harder at painting. And I know it's kind of you shouldn't really have to try to be a good sportsman. But um, if there's an incentive there to, you know, not be a complete douchebag um, all the time, then I guess that's good, especially if those sporting points also affect the main tournament score. But I'd always like there to be that because ultimately the game isn't just about um, about winning and, and, and getting the, the, the those tournament, those 12, 12 nil victories. Uh, the game to me is about um, having a laugh and um, enjoying the time. And I think it, it's really really nice to reward the people who've who've spent a lot of time painting an army or have have just just been a, a, a you know been done thematic things in an, in a uh, in a game that really they shouldn't have done whether it's you know I, I don't know whether legolas taking on a mummock on his own because you wanted to recreate the the scene in the movie that sort of stuff and 
it's hard to reward those things without a, a, a sporting award. So I, I'd always like there to be one personally. I like that. We've got epic moment awards where like Legolas taking on a yes. Mumak gets that or Bjorn hugging a Mumak. Everyone, anyone killing a Mumak basically. So it's Yeah, like- anything Mumak related, yeah. No, that's a good idea. Epic moment award. Good. That's a, a similar way of doing it. Yeah. We, we've, a lot of tournaments in Australia have done away with the best sports because everyone turned out to be so sporting that everyone got full marks for sportsmanship all the time and the people who won it were just the one doing the the games workshop type spiel where they were making sound effects during a game which we thought it wasn't really sportsmanship it was just a bit sort of acting and that sort of stuff so we m- removed it but it's still still valuable yeah, at times i i think that's a good that's a good point actually because um it's not like there are unpleasant people um i, I generally think most games i have are, are really fun and i would give most people I play a, a best sporting vote. Maybe there's some other way of doing it, like like your epic moment. Um, that's a good way of just rewarding, just playing in a different way, or, or I don't know, um, just just something else. But I also, um, for my tournament in October, I've got a random placement award. So I, I'm going to just give an award to someone who comes ninth or seventh or something like that, just because it's nice to, to re- reward people who don't win. That's a good idea. We had one that... um. You used to get first prize if you got fourth place um, because the people who went to it would always finish fourth and get really frustrated. So they put on a silly tournament where fourth was the best and you could use sportsmanship, which were called evil manipulation points, to take off points or add points to people at the end of a game. So you got this really sort of <laughs> silly element where people didn't know their scores and they were trying to finish fourth and they were subtracting scores off people and adding scores to the person who's doing well. And you got this really crazy That sounds like a lot of fun. Now, I like those sorts of tournaments. Like I said earlier, um, we were mentioning just anything, any little strange rules that um, that make a tournament that little bit more exciting to go along to is, uh, is that's a winner in my book. Yeah, it was a famous tournament where you could shoot catapults at other people's tables in order to manipulate their games. So. <laughs> that sounds brilliant. I'd love that. <laughs> you got to use the range. Post-event as an organizer, I think it's really important that you publish the results online or wherever you advertise the results just to show that you had an attendance and make people think about next year. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people uh, in in the UK, we're, we're always posting pictures of of the, you know, the results and who, who won awards. And, and yeah, I, I think it's quite nice to post the results as well, like a table of, of who got most VPs and who did this and that and the other, because... You know, everyone likes, ultimately, even if you didn't win, you like to know um, where you ranked up against everyone else. It's, it's just a nice thing, and having those results is, is a nice way of looking at it. Um, and, and doing them in timely manner. I, I know it's like it's, you've got loads of things to do at the end of a tournament, packing up things and unloading boxes, and you've got to, it, you'd be really exhausted after two days organizing something. But it's great if they're, they're up at least the next day, because then, it, you know, you're still... You're still interested i guess because a week on nobody really cares uh what whether they came seventh or their eighth but a day on people really interested because you want to know who have you beaten your friends and stuff like that yeah you want to really extend that buzz and make sure people are thinking about it all yeah. the way home and it, it definitely helps you with the next year as well yeah absolutely because people know it's know it's going to be a good good tournament if uh if you've got all this fun stuff coming out at the end of it it's great now let's move on to our, our last part harry before we have to go our dream mm-hmm. event. So I'm going to start nah. and I'll respond here. So I've given you no time to think about it whatsoever, but what's your <laughs> dream event? What what three or four things do you want to see in an event you go to and it will make it the best ever for you? I think for me, um, 
a dream event is something that it rewards uh, a different it, it isn't just it, it's got first of all it's got to be not a standard 700 point tournament where you're taking these scenarios out of the events pack i i, I love that I, I love that sort of stuff but equally wanna having having something that that just gives it a unique selling point i guess you know whether it's like you were mentioning earlier at the silver really it sounds like it's it's awesome that you have a team event that you know everyone's teaming up against everyone and i like the idea that each board has a special uh, special rule so um, it can make it complicated for um, beginners, which I think is a problem. But equally, it, it makes it so much more fun uh, to have some special rules. So I, I think if you, Dream Event for me has got to have uh, special rules or something that makes it stand out from a standard uh, standard tournament. And um, it's also, I, I think, it's got to have some really nice boards where you know they're thematic. Um, you know, it's nice to have a standard f- fantasy kind of green grass and some ruins but equally having a, a something that's specifically got the helm's deep wall in the background or or that's got the dead marshes or that's got anything that makes it clearly lord of the rings that's a that's a winner in my book because we're playing this game because we like the lord of the rings and uh, and all the hobbit and um it's got it's got to have a little bit of s- s- scenery and also um the third thing i suppose um is is just having a, a good a good venue I think that's important, you know, kind of having a place where it's convenient, you know, whether it's not too far away from the train station for people or or has you don't have to rush rush away at lunchtime to go and get some food or or has something going on in the evening that is interesting. So uh, it's got to be a, 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 a the social aspect. It's got to be able to bring everyone who's there together and meet new people in a way that that sometimes you you might not always get so yeah that those would be my my three things there's special rules uh immersive terrain and um social stuff in the evening and a convenient location to make those uh social things a lot easier oh i should have gone first you've taken all the good ones that's annoying oh sorry i shouldn't have done three and one just the one i shall stick to one no 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 that's that's perfect because i've got some more i want good versus evil the whole event i don't want any of this my dwarves playing Rivendell Knights, although that one's not terrible, but I want somehow a good versus evil mechanic, whether it's your, you nominate good versus evil at the start of the event, or you bring a good and evil army, or the organizer manipulates it and makes it happen. I want good versus evil. That's me being selfish. Uh, I want... No, I think that's a really good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think the game plays better that way anyway. I also, for my perfect event want the army judging so when you put out your armies you display them for the best army judging i want that to be part of the event as well i want it to have enough time and i want everyone to go through with basically enough of a tick box or something like that just to force them to look at every army because i i find sometimes people put out the army and then this is the time when they go and have a break and leave and i want this to be as important as a game my third thing that i really really want is time I want the time to play the games. I want every game to go to the end. So that's the final thing I want. Just enough time. If you set it at 1,000 points, give me two and a half to three hours to play with some breaks between the games. If it's set at 400 points, you can give me an hour and a half. That's fine. But enough time to finish the game completely. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, and it's, it's, there's a, a temptation to try and fit as many games in as possible. But actually, sometimes it's it's valuable just to have you know, games ending at the satisfying conclusion rather than rushing an end just to squeeze in another game at the end of the day. Totally agree. And and sometimes I think people 
people don't mind playing into the evening and a lot of tournaments I find um you know uh, end the the first day's activities at say I don't know six seven o'clock when actually I don't think people would mind going on till eight that's not a problem if especially if it gives you extra time to finish those games off I agree and then having some events afterwards as well some little scenarios or something is always fun yeah absolutely that sounds brilliant we're, uh, together, I think we've we've probably got an amazing tournament. <laughs> I think I think we do. I think we do. Let's start planning this. So we'll do the combined Green Dragon Entmoot event at some point in the future. Um, <laughs> multiple continents. It will be good. Yeah, absolutely. We can work it out somehow. We maybe when they invent some kind of virtual reality that we uh, team up across the continents, that'll be good. Yeah, I'll get David onto it. He'll be able to sort that out quite well. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Harry. It's been great to have you on. It's been great to do a combined podcast. We've been dreaming about this for years, to have another uh, podcast to share ideas out and steal their material. It's really good. (laughs) Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to come on. Thank you very much for inviting me. I've been listening to uh, The Green Dragon ever since I got really into uh, Lord of the Rings again uh, a couple of years ago. So it's it's a dream come true to to be here (laughs) talking to you and being part of it. So thanks very much. No problem at all, Harry. Goodbye, listeners. And don't forget, traps win games. Thank you for listening to the Green Dragon Podcast. Please be advised that the Green Dragon Podcast is not suitable for children, the elderly, pregnant women, those with a history of heart conditions, or anyone expecting to receive worthwhile advice. You can contact us on thegreendragonpodcasts at gmail.com. Yes, it has an S at the end. Or our Facebook page, The Green Dragon Podcast. We do not claim ownership of any works based on J.R.R. Tolkien, New Line Cinema, Warner Brothers, or Games Workshop. This podcast is purely for entertainment. The thoughts, as rare as they are, are solely that of our hosts and guests. Farewell, listener, until we meet again.